Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of Who Says No. We are recording on July 5th, which is a Monday and an inside baseball for you guys. Collins Day Off is Monday, usually anyway. I mean, our schedules are so hectic that you never really know. Fortunately, I have brought in a long-brewing guest, somebody who I have been talking basketball with for going on a decade. He is the only Milwaukee Bucks fan that I know. My friend from NYU, my basketball confidant, Sagar Panchal. How are you doing, man? I am doing great. Uh, little fireworks went off my head because you pronounced my name correctly. I was genuinely First nervous. time, right? <laughs> it, that is, that is, honestly, this man deserves a raise. I am going to be like Jalen Rose on Countdown. You deserve a raise, Sam. Everyone deserves a raise. Let's get, let's, let's get started. I'm in the best mood possible. I had Denny's this morning and an Oreo milkshake. I cannot be doing better. First of all, milkshake for breakfast is a bold move, but I totally stand by it. I have 100% done that. We used to do that at NYU every now and then. But before we start talking about basketball, before we start talking about basketball, though, I feel like you deserve a shout out as the biggest fan of this podcast, and I will take it a step further. I would say, aside from Colin and I, you are probably the single most important person to the development of this podcast, because you send me detailed feedback after like most episodes. So I'm thinking, like, between maybe Yossi is slightly more important because he's been on so many episodes. But, like, you are one of the most important people in the history of this podcast. And I think even as a first-time guest, you already have friend of the podcast status. I could not be happy with friend of the podcast status. That is incredible. I, I think that's just like, you, Yossi, and Billy. Support to get there. That's incredible. Yeah, I really do think it's just you, Yossi, and Billy, and that's going to be the Mount Rushmore. Um, <laughs> I, I've joked whenever I have Yossi on, he's the media person that I talk to about basketball most. But, like, I would say we, we were um, estimating before the show, we've probably shared 100,000 texts about basketball over the years. And to be clear, they are not short texts. They are like... No. They're like the texts that you see on Twitter that are like memed out and they're like large blocks. That's all they are. Like you could build houses on these text messages. <laughs> I have built stories off of things that we've texted each other and like not changed that much because like we really will have like, I remember some of the most intense debates we've ever had. I remember when Kevin Love was on the training block oh and God. I was in Central Park, like trying to relax. <laughs> and we ended up going back and forth until like I realized at some point, that the sun was going down. Like I had gotten there in the early afternoon, but we were arguing about whether or not the Wizards should trade Bradley Beal for Kevin Love. Yes, I remember. And it took up my entire day. <laughs> I, I, I just had, for some weird reason, we gelled very well. And, and I'm not anymore a sports writer, but Sam thankfully gave me my start um, writing articles for uh, a website to be mentioned later, I guess. No, um, we could just say the Sports Post RIT. The Sports Post. I mean, we can't find the archives anywhere, but it is what it is. There would be these – we would do these features called one-on-ones where basically Sam and I would just, like, very lightly edit our own conversations. And instead of writing it, like, on a real platform, Sam would, like, hit me at, like, 10 in the night when I'm prepping for an exam be like, hey, do you want to do that one-on-one with Chandler Parsons? <laughs> and then We had deep Chandler, Chandler Parsons thoughts. <laughs> we, we, I was the biggest Chandler Parsons fan. It was like my most appreciated. I loved Chandler Parsons back in the day. I thought well, he had the, the best all time. Your all time take, and I'm going to call you out on this because it was Please ridiculous don't at the time. I know he's going to come up. Well, no, no. Th- I think I'm going with a smaller scale one. The smaller scale one is when you compared Alec Burks to Kobe Bryant. Which was we made no, it was Rodney Hood. It was Rodney Hood. Oh, it was Rodney Hood. Oh, sorry. Excuse me. That's only what four percent better. It's not much. But like, yeah, these were the conversations we were having in college and beyond, where it was just like, in fact, honestly, what I should have learned was I should I never needed to go to Twitter because I could have just put these ridiculous takes in our text, and that could have been that. That could have been. Um, But yeah, like the overarching point here is I, I would say. You are probably as responsible for forming my basketball mind as anybody. So I'm really excited to talk to you about like a real basketball story and not Rodney Hood versus Kobe Bryant. You grew up in Wisconsin. You're the only Bucks fan I know. And the Bucks just made the finals. We're going to get into some of the roster building lessons from this team. But before we do that, I just want to give you a chance to fanboy out. Like, how does it feel? Uh, as I was explaining before the show and a little bit last night, 
the Bucs have been treated like the ugly stepchild of Wisconsin sports for many decades. And Wisconsin sports is not like people think of Wisconsin as like the dopey, like, oh, no one could possibly live there. It's too cold, all that. Wisconsin has a great sports tradition. The Badgers are always good at football um, and basketball. They've always been a recruiting powerhouse. The Packers are just, this is just my opinion, the best sports franchise in America. Um, and not best in terms of how they run, but just in terms of like staying power with their fan base. They have more fans in other states than anyone else. They have um, a waiting list for season tickets that spans almost like, I think it's like a hundred some years. It's insane. Like people. We're going to be on like the ninth generation of Mannings before anybody can get Packers tickets. Like yeah, by then it's, it's just going to be every quarterback in the NFL is going to be a Manning. Oh no, it's true. Shout out to my mom for uh, my mom. My mom is arthritis. Right. And like, she can't, she hates cold weather, hates it. Just, just will not go outside for five months a year and yet still grew up and lives in Wisconsin. I don't know how that happened, but it did. Yet when Packers Bears on uh, New Year's Eve happened and she had tickets because one of her good friends from early in her career gifted those tickets as like a, you've been with us for 25 years, this is a gift for you. She duked it out, drove the three and a half hours from Milwaukee to get there, froze her little butt off. And I was like, I don't want to go. I just want to, you know, I, I don't want to wake up early on a Sunday. I don't know. I was being bratty or something. And I regret it to this day. And she still is like, how could you not go to this? And my mom is not a sports fan. My mom is like, but as a person in Wisconsin, that's the thing. That's how much the Packers matter. They, they permeate beyond sports. And I don't think there's any other franchise that actively does that. Like, in a passionate way, not in a like, okay, we're at the Lakers game. We're going to, you know, go to be seen sort of way. It's like, no, 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 you go see the Packers. It's like Mecca over here. So we have that. The Brewers used to be great in the 80s. Miller Park has always been, and I'm never going to call it AmFam Field or whatever they call it now. No, it's Miller Park. Miller Park has been one of the, uh, one of baseball's best stadiums. Marquette used to be a basketball powerhouse. We had Dwayne Wade. We had Steve Novak. We had all these guys. But Jimmy the Fox, Butler. By the way, shout out Marquette players because literally every one of them that makes the NBA turns out to be pretty good. Like Jay Crowder went there too. Like there was this stretch where they were sending one guy every three years, but that guy was always really good. Wesley Matthews. Wesley Matthews Matthews too, yeah. Yeah, Marquette's always secretly been a very good basketball school. Um, And, you know, I was trying to to mention this yesterday, but like the Bucs – Never, you were, you were, uh, we were talking about the TV coverage and I sent you the screenshot of like, the Bucks were breaking news. They won game six, Deer District, which this is all credit to new ownership. The new ownership has been amazing. Um, they have revitalized the entire district. They tore down the Bradley Center. Like they really, when Adam Silver came to town and was like, hey, you guys got to do something. Otherwise we're moving the franchise. Look, I don't care if they're hedge fund guys from New York. They really took it to heart. And they're like, all right, we're going to build a state-of-the-art arena. We're going to put in an entertainment district. And now they've got like this 25,000 fan, you know, city that people love. And um, we had like, we had like six correspondents on this, uh, on this TV network. And the first thing Sam asks is, wasn't there no former box available? And I'm like, yeah. Well, everybody on that screenshot, it was a screenshot with six segments. And, and I think there were eight total people, and they were all white. And I was just thinking, like, I don't know, like, what's Desmond Mason up to? Jesus. Well, I'm just saying, like, you couldn't get one former buck? Like, that's to, all I'm asking. Uh, uh, I, I just want to be really clear about this in case the last 17 podcasts didn't establish this. Sam himself is white. So the fact that Sam came up with this thought and I didn't first shows you he's from the East Coast more than anything else. <laughs> Me, I just accepted it. Um, but no, no, no former buck is going to live here because the franchise never invested in keeping guys for a long, long time. Like there was like, we had to find faith in guys like Charlie Bell. Like the franchise was a sorry, sorry state of affairs for many, many years. Like there was a time I would have argued that like, yeah, the Kings are sad and all, but like they at least went out and tried to get star players. They at least went out and tried to get, you know, a DeMarcus Cousins or a, you know, Chris Weber or something. I exactly Bucks, mean to the offer sheet. Yeah. And, and, and the Bucks never did any of that. They gave Michael Red a big contract. They would like, they, they would make headwaves for signing complete head cases like 
Charlie Villanueva for five years and 45 million or something absurd. And, or, or uh, like you said, OJ Mayo gets a giant contract or like, I, I remember, I can't find the text message, but I remember, you know, feeling like uh, you and I getting a little bit hyped. This is how much of NBA nerds we were in college getting hyped because Nate Walters got playing. Oh time. God. I remember like, like, that. Like, it was like, like the Bucks were never a fun team to ever talk about the Bradley center was by far the worst arena in sports. And it's just, I never thought this would happen. I'm still debating whether I should get finals tickets just because it's so improbable. And yeah, I know it would basically be like half my net worth, but like I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know a, if this is going to happen again and B, like the crowd for game three is going to be an all time sports crowd. We're talking about, like, I think the second screenshot I sent you was this old dude with a brewer's cap on and like a fully white beard and the and the Chiron in front of like his name or whatever is like served in Vietnam during last Bucks championship. Like we are going to be seeing people come out of the woodwork that have not been seen in public for several decades just to see this team compete and possibly win a game. And the 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 match of stars that they have for this is the most Milwaukee type of stars you could imagine. Giannis is honestly one of the most pleasant human beings I hear about in the NBA. He is a winner story all the way around. I can't wait to hear, um, you know, what kind of more stories we find out when we hear, when we see uh, the Giannis books that's coming out in the off season. Drew holiday is a grit and grind type of athlete in a way that I'm so proud to even be able to support. And Chris is like, at least for me, I know Bucks fans are medium on Chris, but I think, you know, he's really proved himself in the playoffs. But for me, as a Kobe fanatic, like, I call him Kobe Middleton to my friends. Like, this dude knows when he needs to get a shot or when he gets hot, he kind of proves the hot hand fallacy correct. Like, if you, you should be scared if Chris Middleton has made two straight threes. You well, you called him Trader Joe's Kobe in, in our text, and I thought that that was very appropriate. Like very much a bargain store, Kobe. I mean, definitely not as consistent and, oh, I guess now almost as expensive. But I did think that was right. But just going in on this a little bit more, I think it's probably the most likable finals team of all time. Like if you just go up and down that roster, Drew Holiday is legitimately the single best person in the NBA. Nobody has ever said a bad word about Drew Holiday. Chris Middleton, you know, very, I think he was a second round pick, number 39. P.J. Tucker, and I might mix up the countries here. But I believe he was a German finals MVP, a Ukrainian all-star, and an Israeli um, league MVP before he even got to the NBA. Like, just the stories of all of these unlikely guys coming together who are great, great people. And that all starts with Giannis, right? Like, we were talking off of the air about just how funny some of the stories from his rookie year were. Where, like, you're hearing, oh, he's just falling in love with smoothies. Or a fan drove him to the arena one game. Like, just... You see that there's this story of like this guy from another country falling in love with Milwaukee. And ultimately, in that lens, it shouldn't be that surprising that he was the guy that stayed out of all of the stars, because like nowadays, very few guys do. He was the one that decided, I want to make Milwaukee my home. And it must, as somebody from Wisconsin, that must give you so much civic pride to be like, our star is the one who actually stayed. I mean, absolutely, because. It's one thing to be like a lifetime Packer. There's actual pride in that because, I mean, if you're on the Green Bay Packers, you're basically just strutting your stuff as playing for like the most storied franchise in most sports is this side of the Yankees. But like, as like to say like, okay, I'm going to lift this mediocre, like complete crap franchise to wherever it can go. And for Giannis, the thing, the one story that always stuck out and it's been told in different sources for years was when Karan Butler uh, didn't like a pair of sneakers and he's about to throw them away and he throws them in the trash. And Giannis, this is when he's like an 18 he's a rookie. He digs it out of the trash because he's like, one of my brothers can use this. Like the concept of throwing away a perfectly good pair of sneakers to that guy was like, like, Oh my God, what are you doing? And, and look, I'm Indian to me that like, like my grandfather couldn't afford sandals when he was a kid. Like he grew up in Mumbai. That to me like rings as like, Oh my God, this guy this guy, you know, and I'm not trying to like, you know, crap on other stars, but like he never received 
any height. This guy didn't have a Hummer, you know, before he was 19 or a Nike deal. Like he didn't get a college title. He was playing in a, a Greek B league, gets scouted out, finally gets to the NBA. But for him, like the NBA is like his chance to make him his own life. Like it's, it's for me, it's a little bit bigger than like an athlete. It's like, Oh my, you want to see this guy make good because he's legitimately like he, he, you can't find a flaw in the man's story. You just are like, Oh, like, like it's kind of like watching a Hakeem Olajuwon or, or watching. Um, I mean, honestly, like Scotty, like Scotty Pippen, like, you know, like just watching someone from a store, from a background that's like, I wasn't highly recruited. I didn't, you know, didn't have anything behind me. Like now I'm here and I'll try my best, but you know, a lot of it's hard work and a lot of it is also like, yeah, genetics, but I, yeah, incredible amount of civic pride. I mean, I remember going to, I remember going to college and everyone just kind of like, you know, crapping on Wisconsin is like, who the hell would want to live there? And it's like, you can live there. It's not like Milwaukee's not that bad. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's summers in Wisconsin makes summers in New York look like a summer in hell. Like, Wisconsin's pretty nice. <laughs> New York Sometimes. summers are like quietly worse than New York winters. Nobody wants to talk about this, but like New York cold is just cold. There's cold everywhere. New York hot is like, you really feel like you're in the fifth circle of hell because there's the yeah. humidity and because it's so crowded, especially if you have to take the subway anywhere, just God forbid you ever take the G train in August. It is like, Ooh, I, I yeah. honestly cannot think of a, like a single place on earth. I would want to be less. But I, I mean, I think we, we said it like Giannis is probably the most likable star in the NBA right now, or he's certainly among them. I know that there are people that want to criticize him and go, oh, he has no bag. Oh, he can't make free throws. Like, OK, maybe there are minor basketball quibbles here, but there's not anybody that like has real personality issues with Giannis. Right. Like there are no. a lot of people that just dislike LeBron and will dislike LeBron forever. There are people James that just dislike Kevin Durant and will James dislike Harden. him forever. James Harden too, like best example of this because LeBron and Durant, I'll say, is like they have basketball talent to back it up, but like James Harden is someone that like has openly criticized Giannis in the media. Bucks fans hate him because James Harden's the one who advanced that Giannis has no bag theory. He's like, oh, I, I just want to be seven feet, go to the hoop, and I'm like, and we know this. I mean, I didn't talk basketball with you for a two year period because James Harden turned me off the game. I didn't like watching a guy flail his arms up and try to get three shots and then go to the playoffs and then not get legit. He got, he didn't get legit calls. Like he's getting run into by Draymond and clay. And then like, look at the rest, like something's wrong. It's like, well, you just spent the entire season baiting for fouls. And then you go, you accuse every other player of not having a bag. And then you also, you know, instead of spending time with your family or having all your brothers and sisters live with you, which Giannis still does, by the way, you are best known for spending a million dollars a night at a strip club and having his jersey is retired at a strip club. Retired there, like, like that's the thing. Like, that's 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 the dichotomy, right? Is like I just mentioned a whole bunch of unlikable things about James Harden, and Gian, like these are unimpeachably likable things about Giannis. And sure, Giannis could be Giannis could be a slumlord in the next twenty years. He could do some really crazy stuff. But for right now, I look at this athlete and I think. He might be one of us. He's doing what I would do if I got, you know, if I was in that same situation. He's not making a big thing out of himself and then crying humility at the press conference. He's doing the best he can. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm a homer for it, but I just, well, I kind of roll my eyes at that criticism. James Harden has a lot of connections to these finals. It's not just, you know, the Giannis stuff. Giannis beats <laughs> him. I mean, obviously there's injuries involved. So I'm not going to sit here and say like, oh, this is the universe paying James Harden back. I mean, I'm not even going to get into the James Harden criticism, but like B.J. Tucker, former teammate of, of James Harden, Chris Paul, former teammate of James Harden, Clint Capella in the last draft. Like, it feels like the 2018 Rockets all contending at the same time. It feels sort of karmically right because that was probably the moment for Harden to get his ring before Chris Paul got hurt. But I, I'm, I'm not going to dig too deep on just criticizing James Harden for the sake of it. I do want to focus on the Bucks right now and I think this is a perfect chance for us to segue into the actual topic of this podcast, which is the lessons that other teams can learn from the way that the Bucks built. And yeah. the first, the place I want to start is a topic that we have talked about a lot on this podcast and that you, you and I have talked about ever since Zach Lowe wrote the original article, which is the 5% rule, which essentially states, it comes from Daryl Morey, that if you have a 5% chance at winning the championship, you go all in to try to win the championship. 
And I don't think many teams embody that more than the Bucks. Obviously, the Drew Holiday trade was an example of we have a shot. We've got to go for it. There was other motivations there as well, considering Giannis was at the time an impending free agent. But I think the move that they didn't have to make, the one that really embodies to me, like, wow, they're really, really going for it, was the P.J. Tucker trade. Because they barely had any draft capital left as it was. They have three stars kind of in their mid to late 20s up until I think Middleton is 29, maybe 30. I'm not sure exactly. Um, oh, Holiday is the older of the three. Yeah, He's Holiday's 30. Middleton's currently 29. Yeah. So you have these guys that like theoretically have a five, six, seven year window, but you go all in and you get this forward who's 35, who's on an expiring contract, and who frankly like did not look very good in Houston. They didn't care. They just said, we're going to go all in. We're going to give up what little draft capital we have left because we think we have a real shot to win the title. Maybe we're not favorites, but we're going to go for it this year because we think we have a chance right now. And I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say if they don't have P.J. Tucker, they lose to the Nets. I mean, they already beat the Nets by a matter of inches, right? Like if you take P.J. Tucker out of the equation, Durant might just average 60 a game in those last three. I think the reason the Tucker thing worked out so well um... – not just on the court is that off the court PJ Tucker very much seems like a buck type of player. Um, in that I think one of the things like Bud always talks about those impressors and I don't take them too seriously, but he always says like, we're defense first, we're defense first, we're defense first. Well, every coach says that. Right. No, they say it, but with the bucks, like all three of their stars, you could stick one-on-one on Kevin Durant and they won't die. Like, yeah, Durant actually himself has said that Drew Holiday is the best defender in the league on him. I watched that series, and I got to tell you, I don't believe it after that. But, like, even Durant has praised Holiday for, even despite his size issues, being able to defend him well. I mean, at that that final air ball during OT, yeah, he was gassed. But, like, if you look at that play from Drew, that is a picture-perfect play. He did not foul him. He did not get in front of him. He just used his size to get almost to his neck put the hand up and Durant missed a shot. Like I'm not saying that Durant, you know, was getting like blocked, but it was a good, it was good defense. Like watching Drew in the conference finals, like turn it up and be like, all right, I am just going to take the ball from this guy (laughs) or like watching. I think it was Stephanie Reddy on TNT um, saying before, I think, I don't know if it was Stephanie Reddy on TNT or someone else um, saying before, I think it was game game five, the Hawks are going to go like a point guard by committee system because they basically want to take the ball up on whoever Drew Holiday is not guarding um, because he is going to, he's going to cover you full court, but not in that theatric Patrick Beverly sort of way. He is going to cover you full court and not foul you. He is going to do it responsibly. He is going to always have his feet in front of you. Like I, I, I watched the Bucks live against the Suns, ironically um, in April. I just thought, you know, I think, the Bucks just don't make many defensive mistakes one-on-one. Giannis is, I think, not perfect in the helps in the weak help side role, but does it very well. I just think, you know, if you're looking at this from a thousand feet in the air, you look at the PJ Tucker sign and you're like, they need more offensive creation, right? At least from what I would think. But in reality, well, that was their idea too, by the way, because they tried to get Bogdan Bogdanovich. Right, right. But wait, what wasn't Bogdan before the Drew trade? Yeah, no. Um they get Drew. It all happens in one night. I remember I was at dinner at Ruth's Chris with my uncle and they <laughs> trade for Drew while I'm there. And as soon as I get home, it's like maybe an hour and a half, two hours later, I get the alert from Woj saying the Bucks have acquired Bogdan Bogdanovich. And my first thought is this is the best starting five in the NBA by a mile. And my second thought is, well, free agency doesn't start for another four days. So how could they have agreed to this? And sure enough, the NBA agreed with that. There were tampering charges brought up. And ultimately, the Bucks don't get Bogdanovich, but they agreed with you. They thought the thing we need out of this fifth spot is a shot creator. Now, after the Bogdanovich thing fell through, they couldn't find that player. So they just said, you know what? We'll go the other way. We'll keep DiVincenzo and we'll get a cheaper defender. And they did with Tucker. I do wonder, I'm not going to lie. I-, I think if they had gotten Bogdanovich, man, like they would have been unstoppable, right? Like that defense with Bogdanovich, they wouldn't have, a t- they wouldn't have Tucker, but they did try. They wanted to do the, they wanted to get a shot creator. The fact that they didn't was just a willingness to improvise that worked out very well. How big was Bud, how big would Bogdanovich's contract be though? So I think you can reverse engineer it to some extent. He signs for four years, 72 million with the Hawks. 
I think based on where the hard cap math was, it was going to be closer to like four years, 64 with the Bucks. Nobody's exactly sure what contract they maybe or maybe didn't agree to. But one of the prevailing theories is that some teams, maybe the Hawks were one of them, basically did this reverse engineering of the cap and realized like, hey, the Bucks can only pay you so much. We plan to offer you more. And that's how this got out. That's one of the prevailing theories anyway. I mean, the other one that I've heard is that the Bucks leaked it to try to like puff out their chest and be like, see, Giannis, we told you we could build a team around you. And that came back to bite them. But nobody's exactly sure what would have happened. I'll say this. He wouldn't have gotten $72 million from the Bucks. It probably would have been in the 60s. I mean, he had this interview on TNT, uh, I think. Oh, God, I can't. I, I'm watching so much basketball. I can't tell TNT and ESPN apart anymore. He had this interview where uh, he was with one of the TV networks and he was saying um, he was kind of talking about the Bucks hawks fiasco a little bit more in depth. And he kept making it seem like, oh, well, I didn't I didn't ask to go to Milwaukee, <laughs> you know, and then he was talking about how happy he was in Atlanta. So I don't know how happy he would have been going to Milwaukee. Anyways, maybe those extra eight million dollars really mattered to him. Well, he also is a much bigger role in Atlanta, right? Like he would have been the. I guess I don't want to say fourth in the pecking order because I think he would have handled the ball more than Middleton and Giannis do, or maybe not Giannis. He would have handled the ball more than Middleton does, but he probably would have been fourth in shot attempts unless holiday really wanted to scale back. So I'm not sure how the role would have worked out in Atlanta though. He is very clearly the secondary creator. Yeah. Okay. I can understand that. I'm just taking a look at the cap sheet and I just think (laughs) you add that 18 million. What does that mean? Does that mean you lose Pat? Does it mean so, because presumably, is, yeah, presumably so, uh, you're you're not re-signing Connaughton. You're probably you can't afford to use the biannual on Bobby Portis. You're basically saying at that point, hour five is Holiday, Bogdanovich, Middleton, Giannis, Brook, and then we're basically just going solely minimums from there. I don't think that works um, because I think one of the key things that because remember. Bryn is a mid-level as well, right? I think he's a slightly above the minimum. I'm not sure exactly. I think – I'm not sure, actually. I, I think I think Bryn might have taken a little bit less to essentially be the sixth man on a title team. But what you really would have needed would, was what happened with the Nets, right? Like, you would have needed a Blake Griffin to say, like, hey, I want to play for this team. I want to go win a title with this team. Or somebody to that effect. Maybe it would have been Aldridge. I guess he retired. Maybe it would have been, you know, pick any sort of buyout guy. That's essentially what you would have needed because you never could have built a functioning bench purely using the minimum during the offseason. But maybe right. over the course of the season, you can do what Brooklyn did. Well, see, that's where I reverse engineered a little bit because, like, I would rather take what the Bucks currently have over making this already thin roster even thinner with Bogdanovich because, yeah, fine, they're unstoppable at their starting five, but any of those guys get injured, you're done. Like, any and- of those guys get slightly injured. And, like, Kevin Durant, like – they were gassed, you know, like I would have, I think PJ was super useful because you don't just have six fouls. You've six hard fouls, right? Unless the refs are calling ticky tack. Like you have six good fouls on KD to waste. And then well, something that I love about Tucker too, is that he's very strategic about how he fouls. Like he yep. doesn't think, Oh, I can't get the six fouls. What he's thinking is I have five fouls and here's how I'm going to use them. Like I'm going to go a little bit harder on this play or here's a moment where I think we need to stop the ball. Like he is so strategic and Beverly to an extent is as well. Like I know Beverly's dirtier about it, but like, I do think there are certain physical defenders that are really smart about how they try to use their fouls. Yeah. And I thought when he was playing KD, that's exactly what he did. I a hundred percent agree. And like, we talked about this with holiday to an extent too, that holiday was probably too small to defend Durant. Tucker is definitely much smaller as well. I do think it was interesting. I got to give Bud credit, and this might be a a segue into the next topic. You are higher on Mike Budnholzer than I am. He did stick to his guns. He never put Giannis on Durant, at least for extended periods, like they had their switches. But he decided these are the principles under which I'm building my team. And the Bucs, maybe you can argue that if the Nets were healthy, they would have fired him by now. But the Bucs stood by him after the playoff loss last year. And it's worked out. They're in the finals. I mean, you can't really argue that result. You mentioned this before the show to me, and I I think it's a very smart point. Pat Riley has always said the smartest decision that he ever made was sticking by Eric Spolstra. And we know for a fact that LeBron wanted Spolstra out 
that Chris Bosh maybe did as well. They wanted Pat Riley to coach them. And Pat Riley said, no, you're going to work with Spo," And it worked out. Well, I think the, I'm not so much, I mean, how many times have I texted you in complete, you know, agony, like just someone fire Bud now, just someone please fire him. Like, and, and, and we're, I'm saving this six letter topic for last that starts with a T and ends with an E and you know what that topic is, but um, you know, Bud's coaching failures are known and his lack of adjustments are known. But for me, what really stuck out was Giannis's endorsement of him, not really making explicit endorsements in the media, but like there were, there have not been many articles or any articles from what I remember that have come out in the like, you know, I, I hate to bring him up again, but like James Harden's going to push Kevin McHale out of a job. Uh, the Clippers want Doc Rivers out, um, you know, and I'm not saying players push coaches routinely, but like when you have a $50 million guy, you're going to listen to them when they say, I don't feel like having this coach anymore because you want to listen to them and see how they develop going further. And I think even down to the, the dumb things like Giannis, you know, shooting all those stupid threes, like, if you have to indulge Giannis to shoot his stupid threes every once in a while, because the other shots you're getting with Giannis are of the 80% mold. I think Giannis needs to know when to turn that down. And I think he did that during game six and game seven against uh, Brooklyn. But like, if that's what you have to do to make him feel like he's going to age into a better player in his thirties, fine. Like the amount of, the amount of stars prior to the analytics era that were allowed to do completely dumb stuff. Every star had it. LeBron used to shoot threes and Bill Simmons, one of my favorite Bill Simmons isms ever was Bill Simmons writing in columns that like people should find LeBron $10,000 every time he attempts a three. That's how bad he was shooting threes back in the day. Um, now he's like, now it's, I don't want to say one of his better skills, but like LeBron from 30 feet, I'm not going to say the, they call it the lay F word U three where he just right. walks into it past half court. It's honestly, it might not be one of his most effective moves, but it's honestly probably my favorite to watch because yeah. you know that it's going in, number one. You 100% yeah. know when he walks into that three, it's going in. But number two, you know that two possessions later, he's taking a three and he's missing it. Well, but the thing is, is like at a good time, that's a demoralizing three to yeah. get into, right? Like the most efficient, like this is kind of the defense of Kobe over the years. Like the most efficient shot is the shot you make two seconds in the shot clock. And if that's a 30 footer, fine. I'm not saying Giannis is ever going to be good, but like if, you know, getting him comfortable with shooting a basketball for a guy that only started playing basketball when he was like 13 or 14 is what you got to do. Do it. Like that's fine for me. I have uh, also wondered if there might be some ancillary benefits to the Giannis threes. I'm not saying I support them. But, like, on those possessions, you can let your teammates, like, stand still for 10 full seconds. That's a meaningful degree of rest in the middle of a game. I would also say that there tend to be long rebounds off of those threes, so maybe you get more offensive rebounds. Like, I'm not saying I endorse the threes wholeheartedly, but throwing in what you're saying as well, I do think there's more than enough justification from taking them. Well, this brings up another point, and this I do credit to Bud because I, I've seen this more as a shift this season than seasons before. Have you ever noticed that when Giannis rims off a free throw from the front rim, the Bucks almost always catch the offensive rebound? I haven't noticed that, but that's a good point. They do. They do. They almost every single time the Bucks will get the board because, one, they're really good at the boards, but, two, like it's gotten to the point where Brooke and PJ are just like trained. They're like, all right, it's going out the front rim. And I think the rebound coming from the front rim is a unique sort of reflex because the ball comes off very quickly and it doesn't come off very low. It comes off very high. So instead of going over the back, these guys aren't necessarily looking for position um, in, in sort of the front. They're kind of looking in position from the back to grab their hands up. And that's how they get the board. The biggest takeaway from Bud's coaching adjustments, even if they're subtle or even if he doesn't have any, is that as a fan, you have to kind of appreciate the ones he has made if you believe that the larger result is going to matter. Like, I think one of the biggest criticisms you had back in the day with Spolstra was also his lack of coaching adjustments. Like, I remember you getting infuriated about that during the finals. Well, it's ironic because now, like, Spolstra has evolved to the point where he will try, like, literally anything. Like, that's one of my favorite things about Spolstra now is that he's just so, like, unafraid of looking foolish. And especially we saw this, well, I don't want to say we've seen it with Bud, but like 
One of my favorite Eric Spolstra-isms now is that he doesn't wait to make adjustments. He will come in with game one using what he thinks is his best lineup or using whatever he thinks is his best strategy. I think that's something that the Bucks haven't necessarily replicated. They've needed to take time within series. And we've seen this. They almost lose game one to the Heat. They do lose game one to the Nets. And they do lose game one to the Hawks. But they've been at least willing to make some adjustments, right? It's not like they come out for game two of the Hawks series and all of a sudden they're switching everything. But, you know, Brooke Lopez takes higher drops on in pick and roll. You know, they stay, they leave the uh, wrong shooters alone. Like, they did adjust. There were big adjustments in the net, net series too, like in who was guarding Bruce Brown and, you know, acting as the um, off-ball shot blocker. The point is, we got into a point now where Buttonholzer went from like an F in adjustments up to like a C minus, and he was willing to make genuine sacrifices on the way to doing that, right? They have the best record in the NBA the last two years. They're a three seed this year in part because Budenholzer wanted to use this season as an opportunity to experiment a little more. That's something to be commended. Not a lot of coaches are willing to sacrifice regular season wins in the name of improving your chances in the playoffs. And if he hadn't do that, done that, I would say there's a good chance they're not alive right now. Well, I mean, a lot of these adjustments you're mentioning, how much of that is because of Drew, right? That, that, that's kind and of... And Tucker, too. Tucker, too, but also, but mainly Drew. Like, when I was... So I went to a Bucks game live uh, in April. They were playing the Suns. Giannis is playing the game, plays decently well, goes out of an OT with a cramp. The one thing I noticed from Drew was that he was essentially the Doberman on defense. Like, he com- did all the communications. When Tucker was in there, he did it, too. But I think, like, as a communicator, like, Drew makes things so much easier for you um, in that. Like, and he's he- the rare guard that really does that, by the way. When you think about the defensive quarterback, you're usually thinking about a center who's on the back line and, like, barking out, you know, there's the screen, there's this, there's that. Right. It's rare that you see a guard sort of act as a quarterback of a defense. Holiday's one of the few guys who did it. Kobe did it. LeBron has done it, but I guess LeBron's more of a forward. Like, usually you think of centers when you think of great communicators on defense. Holiday is an exception. Well, and, and I think I think one of the things that distinguishes Holiday from those other defenders you mentioned is that because Holiday knows he has a size dif- disadvantage, I think he takes and maybe this is just eye test stuff. This isn't backed up by analytics, but I wish it was. I don't know anyone else who takes the free throw line to free throw line defense more seriously than him. In terms of like just okay, I can't let you get like like. For Trey Young, I think it was, I'm not going to let you get middle penetration. You can get side penetration. You can go through a screen, but you're not going to get middle. You will have, you will not be able to bring the ball up and bring it up at half speed, gain momentum, and then go straight down the line like you were able to do against Philly. I'm not going to let you do that. And it worked. Like for, you know, aside from game one where the Bucks defense was a total mess, like besides that, I think he got that done. And... I just, I, I think that part is like, if I can do my job with you guys coming down the floor going first, then I'll call out the switches. I'll make sure that like, he has this subtle method of help that I think really helps where like, if he notices a guy who beat maybe I'll say like Brooke or like uh, Bobby, especially like off the three point line, but he's in a position to help. He'll kind of just put his hand out in a weird way and just kind of like either swipe at the ball or like make a gesture to swipe at the ball, but then immediately run back to his shooter or run back to the coverage if it calls to it. And it's like those subtle skills, you, you can't teach that stuff. And I think coaches really appreciate that. And frankly, these, these are none of these are things Eric Bledsoe ever did. Like Eric Bledsoe, I would say was a net negative in so many of these ways. Like, yeah, he's a gutsy on ball type of guy, but like the moment you take Eric Bledsoe off ball, his attention span's gone. Well, the other issue with Bledsoe was that he didn't really have the ability to scale. And we saw this with Drew Holiday, right? Where when Giannis goes down, Holiday is suddenly scoring 30 points and Brooke Lopez is suddenly scoring 30-something as well. I don't think you should build your team around scale. I think the Lakers saw this this year, where they essentially built their offseason around getting Dennis Schroeder and getting Montrez Harrell, essentially getting guys who could score for them if LeBron missed time or if Davis missed time that didn't fit with them when they were on the floor together. But the Bucks struck a really nice balance where Drew Holiday is perfectly capable of impacting a game scoring 12 points. But when you don't have Giannis, he can go up and score 30. I think that was somewhat incidental. I don't think that's what they were thinking when they got him. But 
But I do right. think it was a major advantage they had over Bledsoe. I mean, and, and, you know, you bring up a really good point with the Lakers because if we look at why the Lakers kind of didn't really mesh together as a team, taking it out outside of injuries, right, just with the assumption that, like, a LeBron team is a LeBron team, a lot of it comes down to you had, like, seven or eight guys hunting for contracts. Like, you had people that very much were incentivized to take an extra workload because, duh, they're going to want to get paid this summer. But then, or they want to get better minutes in Harold's case. But like with Milwaukee, Brooks already paid. Brooks also has like two or three decent contracts. Holiday got paid. Jonas is paid. Chris is paid. Like, I think everyone knows what they're doing and they know why they're there. So there isn't any other focus besides the team focus of like, okay, I know what position I need to play. I know which minutes I'm going to get because the roster's thin anyways. Where with the Lakers, you have this disease of more thing where, like, Mark Gasol, who is an all-world, all-time center, is, like, literally shrugging his shoulders, like, you need offense, not on your bench. What are you doing? We can't spend any more minutes on this podcast talking about Mark Gasol. I think just my feelings are already too hurt about that. Uh, I do want to talk about the holiday extension for a little while. I do think this is a lesson that Phoenix really exemplified as well. Bad contracts are entirely contextual. And what I mean by that in the case of Phoenix is they trade for Chris Paul and there are all of these teams, including Milwaukee, that were afraid of trading for him with his contract. What the Suns recognized was they could function as if it was basically only a $7 million addition. They had around $25 million cap space before they trade for Paul. Afterward, they could have functioned with around $18 million, but they instead realized it makes more sense to operate above the cap that way they can use the full mid-level on Jay Crowder and they can use bird rights to re-sign Dario Saric. Essentially, they filled all of their holes and also got a Hall of Fame point guard in the process because they were willing to eat a contract that other teams were afraid of. I don't think the Bucks were quite as brazen on that front, but I think that something they recognized with Holiday was, sure, this is probably going to be a bad contract on the, bad, on the back end. When he's 34 and making max money, you're probably not going to be getting all-star production out of him. But aside from the 5% stuff we already talked about and needing to get up to that threshold so you have a chance to win the title, I think they also just recognize, like, we're never going to have cap space anyway. With Giannis and with Middleton and with Brooke, like, we are so capped out that adding another bad contract just isn't going to hurt us. And I think that's something that more teams need to appreciate, that just having a bad contract in itself is not particularly damaging. It's only damaging when it prevents you from doing other things. I would also add that a bad contract is damaging if the bad contract, well, I mean, it's to add to your point, which, yeah, it prevents you from doing other things, but this is more of an encore thing. For me, a bad contract stings worst when the bad contract is you signed a guy for one, for one way play on the floor and that one way play goes away. Like, well, I, I agree with that, but I would also say like, that's, there's an intentionality that goes into that in the postseason because there are types of offensive players that become more valuable in the playoffs and there are types that become less valuable. We saw this with Joe Harris, right? I was getting clowned all season for saying that maybe he didn't have a great contract at $75 million, but once he got to the playoffs and all of a sudden, like, I don't think he just went cold. I think the Bucks realized, oh, we know exactly how Joe Harris is trying to get his shots. We can figure this out. They did. And suddenly, like, he's not getting the open looks that he was getting all year, you know, I think you have to, as a team, be very wary of the 82-game player versus the 16-game player. Well, it's like, it's like solving for Kyle Korver, right? Like, it's, it's like there are problems, and if you go, like, let's say you go to Asia and you give two kids a math test, and, you know, one of the problems is solvable but should be solved in a certain amount of time, and the other problem is one of those problems that is not solvable, but it's more of like a show your work sort of thing. And it's like, well, we're going to see how you showed your work, but you're never going to solve the problem. The first type of problem is your Kyle Korver or Joe Harris. It's like, you're going to take 10 minutes to solve this, or in this case, 100 games. But once you get the answer, it, it becomes like, it becomes a non-threat. Like, Kyle Korver, in many ways, is less valuable to LeBron than Shannon Fry is. And it's amazing that we think this way because if you look objectively at those two players, Kyle Korver is, you know, going to be more valuable in an 82-game season most of the time than Shannon Fry. But, like, Shannon Fry during the playoffs is like, oh, my God, we can't let this guy go in from the corner. He's going to kill us. And also, he can defend fives. Crap. Like, 
Jesus, and he can rebound. Oh, no. Like, I think shooters are overrated in that context. But when I look at it from the Bucks roster, I just – look, I look at these contracts, and I see a lot of good two-way deals. And when it comes to Drew, yeah, it doesn't look great at $34 million in 2024. But I could also counter that and say, like, if he, you know, still manages to put up, like, I don't know, 18 and 7 – and he's not awful defensively, but it, but he's like, you know, Chris Paul light. He could be fine. Like, I'd be fine with that. Like, well, especially if you got the title. I mean, banners fly forever. You'll, you'll eat whatever contracts you have to eat at that point. I no. do think that was partially the motivation behind the trade, though, was I think Zach Lowe has said this on a few occasions. They felt like they had two guys that they knew were going to be in their cl- closing lineup before the trade. It was Giannis. It was Middleton. And then the other spots were a question mark. With Drew, he was never a question mark. You knew for sure that he was going to be valuable late in playoff games. You didn't know if the shot was going to fall. You didn't know if he was going to look like he did, you know, early in game seven against the Nets or late against um, game seven of the Nets. But you knew that you could keep him on the floor, which they didn't with Bledsoe. Yeah, and I think this season was also a great evaluation in keeping Brooke Lopez on the floor. Like I, many- We were texting all season saying oh. they need to go small. They can't finish games with Brooke Lopez. Shows what we know. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Like I'm, I'm, I'm. I look like I got complete egg on my face when it comes to Brooke. Like, and then I'm, and now I'm looking at that twelve million number, and I'm like, oh, this is a great contract. I'm like, well, oh, especially think, how many teams, think about how many teams without championship ambitions would love to have Brooke Lopez and let him scale back up to eighteen points a game. I think there would be plenty if they had shopped Brooke Lopez. Like after the season, if they shot Brooke Lopez, I think they'll get positive value for him, but they're not going to do it. I do want to go back to Brooke for a second, though, because one of the important topics that you brought up when we were talking beforehand was the first Chris Middleton contract, because we talk a lot about them re-signing him in 2019, but the groundwork was really laid for that in 2015. And what I mean by that is at the time, Chris Middleton was not Chris Middleton. He was a third-year player who had been a second-round pick of the Pistons. They got him in a trade. I think it was the Brandon Jennings, Brandon Knight deal. They get him in that trade. He averages 13 and four, but the Bucs see something in him and they give him a five-year, $70 million deal. There's a player option on the last end. But what was really important about that deal was that it was declining. He gets as high as 15.2 million in the second year of that deal. But in the last year, at least last year before the player option, he's down to 13 million. And that really matters because in the end, they were only 1.5 million below the luxury tax line and 7.5 million below the hard cap. So, Having less Middleton money on the books allows them to use the biannual exception on Brooke Lopez. Now, there were other components to this, right? Like maybe they could have gotten Lopez and not traded for Miritich. Like there are a number of different ways you could have made this happen. But essentially, imagine you give Middleton a three-year deal. At that point, you're re-signing him in 2018, and maybe he's going from 13 million to 25. At that point, you have so much money tied in that maybe you can never bring in Brook Lopez, which turns out to be this transformative move. So I think one of the important lessons here is re-sign your young guys to long-term deals because you can't risk losing them early or having them get paid too much too early. And the reverse of this is Giannis. They only sign him for four years. Obviously, he re-signs, but that was very precarious for a while, having him go into a contract year that would have been this year if, they hadn't, if they'd given him that fifth year that would have given them a little bit more wiggle room. I think the at least this is just me talking from the non-cap standpoint in terms of the lesson. The, the lesson I mentioned prior to the cop, podcast w- or the show, I guess, was trust. You have to have a good amount of trust to have a descending contract, or you can end up like Scotty Pippen. But like when you're looking at someone like Chris, and this also, by the way, uh, goes into his life, where Chris is this guy who got recruited by, um, I, I forgot who the recruiter was at AM. I can look him up, but he's known for being like a guy who finds dominant, Scott Spinelli, Scott Spinelli at uh, Texas A&M. He gets recruited by Spinelli at Texas A&M. He does not get many looks outside of that. Plays for him, gets to the NBA. Again, it does not get much looks outside of the Bucks and the Pistons, essentially, right? He gets traded to Milwaukee. He, at the beginning of it, is known as just a really good three-point shooter. Like, he can get the shots up and get him up easy. He can play decent defense. And I remember at the time, like, we were looking at him as, like, a 3 and D guy that also made these weird buzzer beaters every once in a while. 
And I didn't, I remember, I didn't even think of him as a star, but I think the Bucks saw, the Bucks saw something in him, but they kind of asked him like, look, we'll overvalue you right now. And we'll give you a good contract for more years than you'll probably get anywhere else. But you have to take this cap back from us. It'll give you a better raise. It'll put you back in free agency, you know, during that age 27 year, which is probably, I think in terms of free agency years, like age 27 to 29 is probably the best years to go into free agency. Yeah. Well, the advantage of doing it at age 27 is you can either take a long-term deal. Great. You're going to get paid. You could also take a shorter deal and like get back into free agency at 29 and then get four years then. I think it just gives you the most flexibility in the kind of contract you can seek out. Right. So I think it was a mutually beneficial thing for both sides. But you, as a star, you have to be someone who has a lot of faith in the organization to, and it doesn't matter what the faith is, whether Middleton thought Milwaukee was a winning organization or whether he thought the ownership group was good or whether it was purely self-centered and he just thought, okay, I'm going to get shots up in these next four years no matter what happens. So I'll just bolt out of here once it's done, right? And maybe that's his thinking at the time. You have to have some leverage to go do that. Like the Kings can't go and sign guys to this type of deal, right? Um, And also to that worth, like I remember during that time, John Hammond was getting a lot of good press over a lot of the executive decisions he had been making over the last two or three years prior to that before the messy divorce with Jason Kidd started happening. Um, So... I think, you know, I think there was a little bit of good faith that turned into and blossomed into a really good contract. John Hammond, quietly, we don't talk about this. This team, imagine what this team could have been if not for two very large mistakes that John Hammond made. Number one, draft Jabari Parker, number two overall. Joel Embiid is sitting right there, and the Bucs can't clear him medically. Number two, I remember we were thinking of this as like a flashbulb moment when they signed Greg Monroe. To a oh max contract. The Greg Monroe. Oh no. We were thinking of this as like, oh my God, Milwaukee is Lord a Max free agent. Like, this is going to be great. And there was a lot of reason to believe that, right? Like, he is such a good, or at least he was such a good passer at that point that you what? thought, oh, okay, even if you don't have much shooting in the front court, there are still ways you can take advantage of this. He's going to be an offensive fulcrum. I'm not going to criticize John Hammond too much because he did draft Giannis and he did trade for Chris Middleton which were two pretty important moves in the grand scheme of things. But it's just, it's interesting to think about what this team could have been. And I think that's a nice segue into Malcolm Brogdon, which is the more realistic what if here. I think a lesson that you can take from the Malcolm Brogdon saga, aside from, let's just be honest, the Bucks should have re-signed him. They didn't because they were cheap. I think a lesson you can take from that is that correcting mistakes is usually doable, but it's extremely pricey. So look at what the Bucks did. They traded basically all of their picks to get Drew Holiday. Imagine if they just re-signed Malcolm Brogdon, maybe they can use those picks on somebody else. I'm lower on Malcolm Brogdon than most people. I recognize this is a hot take. I never – I always thought he was good, but I thought he was serviceable in that George Hill kind of way. And I know I might be a little bit ignorant for saying that, but I always found – I always found a little bit of a hole with Malcolm Brogdon. I always thought the Bucks were asking him to do more than he was capable of doing. And See, I go yeah. the other way. I think the Pacers kind of allowed him to scale up and that made him look a lot better than he did in Milwaukee. But I also recognize that Sabonis has kind of been a perfect partner for him as well. I don't know if he becomes this player if he stays with, with the Bucs. Yeah. Um, and uh, one other thing I'm going to write, I'm going to say regarding Jabari. Um, I've never liked, I, I've never liked that pick, but unfortunately I think looking back at it, like, the only person I would have taken aside from Jabari, if I'm thinking back in that frame, would probably have been Julius Randle. Because, okay, I don't think the Bucks take Embiid because of his injuries at the time, because of the fact that it was an open secret that he was really injury prone, because of the fact that we know now that it took him three years to even get to playable, um, because of the fact that I think, yes, his fit with Giannis is – in, in theory, very good, but in practice could have produced a lot of ego problems. Well, um, you would have had similar issues that you had with Ben Simmons, right? Where, like, Joel Embiid has to spend a lot more time behind the three-point line than he maybe otherwise would if he wasn't on Ben Simmons' team. I don't think it would have optimized either of those players, but the talent level would have been so insane. And think of the defense. Yeah, but again, I'm thinking about, like, 
Jason Kidd in 2016, and this is crucial for Giannis's development, no matter how much we both abhor Jason Kidd as an NBA head coach, like Jason Kidd in 2016 being like, all right, we're done. We have no chance at this season being decent. Giannis, you're on point guard for the rest of the year. You're going to average a triple-double. Have fun. That's not happening if Joel Embiid's there. Joel Embiid I do want to say this in general, too. I think Jason Kidd is a bad coach. We can recognize that. And he's, frankly, I'll just say it, he's a bad person because of all the other stuff. Yes. I will say, I think in general, we tend to be a little too dismissive of the contributions of fired coaches. I'm not saying that Jason Kidd put them on the right path or anything. But what Jason Kidd did in believing in Giannis means quite a bit to this organization. Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. And, and to an extent, remember, this is a coach that really prized three-point shooting. He, like any time Mirza Toledovic was anywhere in the world and needed a basketball contract, Jason Kidd found his spidey sense and was like, oh, Mirza, Mirza's available. Hey, someone trade for Mirza Toledovic. Let's go. Like, like Jason Kidd really prized three-point shooting. And to an extent, he could have been one of those voices in the room. I'm not saying I know anything, but he could have been one of those voices in the room, like finding Chris Middleton and being like, this guy's going to be good later. Look at how well he shoots threes. And to an, like, like he has a very good shooting stroke. Like I'm not saying it's Steph Curry. Like it's not, but like for the amount of athleticism he has, I am surprised with how smooth his jumper is. I would also say, I mean, I think the jumper was evident pretty quickly. Like, he's shooting 40% from three as soon as he gets to Milwaukee. Yes. I think his development as a one-on-one offensive player is just not something that should be taken for granted. Like, when he got to the Bucks, he was not somebody that should have been, like, running the late-game offense, though. As you'll, re- as you'll recall, I lost quite a bit of money on Chris Middleton's first buzzer beater, and I would not shut up about it. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll let you tell this story. I'll let you tell this story. Uh, so, uh, I remember the date too, because it was during finals during, uh, like my sophomore semester at NYU is like December of 2014. Chris makes his first buzzer beater. It's his first big moment of his career. It establishes him as a name. He, uh, inbounds a pass to some whomever and gets the ball back, fakes, spins around silky jumper off the backboard buzzer beater from three just one of those moves that only vets should really attempt. Like it is not a move that a 22 year old should be trying to do. Um, he makes it Sam blows up my phone. Like phone at this point on a biweekly basis, like, and usually I'll wake up and the text number is above 10 and I'm like, well, I don't have that many friends, but I know Sam's got something to say. So I pick up my phone and then it's usually like something in all caps and then something with a bunch of exclamation marks. But this was just like, Oh my God, Chris Middleton lost me $900. This is insane. And then like, I don't know if it was 900 to be clear, but then it might've been pretty close. I mean, this is like, this is fine. I'm like, you're going to be fine. It's just Chris Middleton. I love this buzzer beater. I'm, I'm for it. Right. Like, Hey, we should mention this buzzer beater came against the Suns, right? Yes. It came against the Suns. Why was I betting on the Suns in 2016? That's another question. Uh, because the Suns had a point guard trif- they were they were the forty eight win Suns team. That was the was really it that, was it that year? I think yeah, it was so, a little later yeah, than that. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I know it was just after that year. So maybe it was like a Brandon Knight thing. Maybe I was really into Brandon Knight. I don't know. I don't know what motivated this bet. I mean, that was also. I think, as I recall, I think both of us were really into Dragic. Dragic at that time. Well, as we should have been, because Goran yeah. Dragic was awesome. Cool. I will say for like the next, I don't know, year and a half, I was very dismissive of Chris Middleton just because I was so mad about that one moment. And then Chris Middleton starts to blow up after this. And I just keep saying to myself like, oh yeah, this is nothing. This is nothing. And now soon enough, he's an all-star. It's, it's, it was, it was honestly, uh, I think 2014, 2015 was like, the peak of all of our memeable NBA friendship moments. I even remember, you know, around that time, and it was my desktop background for a solid two years. Do you remember, uh, do you remember um, da, 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 the Brooklyn Nets, Jason Kidd incident? Uh, with the, oh, the, the soda? Yes, the soda, yes. the soda. <laughs> oh, I love the soda. It's, it's what was so- my take on that in the moment? <laughs> so good. The second one was the, um, I think it was Rajon Rondo uh, in a Lakers huddle. Like he made it into the Lakers huddle for a solid like four minutes, like, like, 
like 40 seconds. And I had that I had as my desktop background for a solid two years. It was, well, he was predicting the future at that point. Yeah, honestly. Um, Looking back, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking back at 2015. Maybe the Bucks could have taken Aaron Gordon, but he wouldn't have developed in time. I would have wanted them at the time. Shows how much I know. Probably wanted them to take Dante Exum, but I'm a crazy person. You're not alone. A lot of people really like Dante Exum in that draft. Thank God they didn't do that. I loved Marcus Smart, but I think him at two would have been too high. And if I'm redrafting, I guess the only person that I'm really like goes like crazy in terms of my head is probably Zach Levine at 13. He probably should have. They were never going to take him at two though. No, no one would have. I guess Clint was a steal. Oh my God. KJ McDaniels. Jesus. Was that, that was Bill Simmons. I think it was calling him Scotty Pippen 2.0. Yes. Um, Well, and ironically they had, I'm not going to, they didn't have Scotty Pippen 2.0, but like Robert Covington was there at the same time. And Covington is the one who grows into the, Great defender, you know. I guess he was more of a three and D guy, but I think that was sort of the ironic part of it. As I just, we, I just want to shout out because you, as a prominent writer on a nationally recognized website, this needs to be in the record. Kenny Smith, stop calling Drew Holiday Robert Covington. I know they wear similar numbers and may occasionally have similar hair, but Kenny Smith, you should know better. I shouldn't see you go to your big board and call Drew Holiday Robert Covington. He got eliminated three rounds ago. Sorry, I had to well, get on my That really got TNT me. has a bit of a problem with this because Marv was every game. It was like Middleton would shoot a three and you'd hear like Portis for three. The, the the recent NBA Reddit memes around that have been excellent. There there there's now been like it's it's become a joke at this point that I've just enjoyed finding in other threads where someone will say any random statement and then they'll say now they're saying it's and it'll just be something completely different and it'll just go into five or six responses like oh man Andre Drummond could never get a contract for the Lakers. Now they're saying it's Brooke Lopez. Now they're saying it's Greg Monroe. Now they're saying it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> well, we've been at this for over an hour at this point. I think we're, we've mostly covered the, the big points, but I'll give you just the floor. Anything else you want to say? Anything you want to complain about? Um, I won't complain. I will say this is probably one of the best moments of my basketball life. Uh, I really do hope the Bucs win in six, and I really hope that someone pays Brandon Jennings to be there. Just because I think in terms of online fandom, Brandon Jennings is responsible for so much of this. <laughs> like Brandon Jennings does not get the due he deserved for just being a complete troll and, you know, flying in the face of the alpha goat, alpha dog LeBron in his absolute best year and being like, yeah, we're beating him. Bucks in six. Like that was, and, and, and I remember that series also because that was, remember that was the time during uh, when Birdman had like, I think he was shooting like 85% from the field for two rounds. Like Shaq was on TNT going, ah, 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 ah. Like every single time a highlight came in or like Birdman, Birdman, like the cartoon or whatever. It was this is the first time in the history of this podcast that somebody has made bird sounds. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it, it's a first. Yeah, well, you know, we can't be, we can't have the viewership numbers and no dunks, but we can at least try to imitate them, right? Yeah. Um, I, I will say, though, that I hope that this series goes to six. And if not, I know I didn't talk about the Suns, but Sam uh, knows this from my, you know, my various rants about them. I love the Suns, and I would be perfectly happy if they were a team we lost to. I'm yeah, not- as far as like both teams here, there's not like a villain in this series. I guess there are people that don't like Chris Paul. I, I don't really get it. But, like, Chris Paul certainly deserves a championship. Monty Williams, after everything he's been through in his personal life, like, that dude, I can't think of many coaches that deserve it more than him. I will say, though, it was re- very, very nice to see the first ever Bucks and Six since Brandon Jennings made that prediction come to get them to the finals, right? It's so much better that way than if it had just happened in, like, the first round. I like, just maybe he has like 25 points of the game. <laughs> right. It was, it just, it makes you feel like the Bucks are a team of destiny, which the Suns might be as well. I hope this series goes to six just because this postseason has been so disappointing with all the injuries. I just want a good finals. I mean, I guess I would say I'm rooting for the Bucks slightly, but more than anything, this, I just want a good series of basketball to close out this season. And assuming Giannis is healthy, I think we're going to get that. I mean, Giannis versus Aiden is going to be a monster matchup. Like, it is going to be – I Aiden is one of the few bigs I'm 
scared of when it comes to Giannis. That guy can guard him on the perimeter, can guard him in the paint. He will not get in foul trouble. He's smart. He's got CP3 communicating with him. Like, he's going to do great against Giannis. And I'm – this is – I mean, this is – people are complaining about the big city stuff about this and, like, ESPN keeps calling it a terrible city or whatever. But, like, this is – the finals of the future. Like you have a guy in Devin Booker that scored 70 points in an NBA game, 70 points. His team loses by 20 and he's finally getting vindicated as the top tier player that he is. And I'm really, you know, as a fan of ISO scores, I'm happy about this. Like no one should score 70 points in an NBA game and then be forgotten to history. They should get to the finals at some point. Like if you're that good of a one-on-one scorer, I'm sorry, like basketball is in sense a one-on-one game. You should be that good. You should be, you know, a George Gervin. You should be a Julius J, a, a Dr. J. So, I mean, I think everything's in its right place. And uh, thankfully, we got this one podcast off before the Nets destroy us all next year. It's great. Yeah, I was going to say, the Nets are probably going to win it next year. But I do like this idea of this being the finals of the future because the Nets have spent all their assets and they're, and they're not old, but they're like on the way. I don't want to say on the way down either. They're an aging team. Let's put it that way. The Lakers are built around LeBron and LeBron isn't going to be LeBron forever. Of course, we've been saying that for half a decade. The Clippers have spent all their assets. Like, I don't think it's that far fetched to say like in the next few years, we'll get Zion in the finals or we'll get Luca in the finals or we'll get, you know, pick your young star X. And we're also probably going to get more small markets because the traditional powers are, let's say, trending downward. I think the Nets are probably going to get a title out of this. I think the Lakers have one or two more really good years in them. But I think more matchups like this between teams that don't traditionally get this far are probably coming in the future. Yeah. I mean, I'll just to close out the podcast for Bucks fans everywhere. I will give one giant positive other than the fact that thank God they're still pairing. They're still paying Larry Sanders money. Cause that guy needs it in 2022, 2023 when Giannis is going to be about 28 or 29 Middleton's going to be 31 Drew's going to be 33. Brooks going to be 36 and still only getting paid 13 million. Pat is going to have a player option, which I don't know. He might actually take it and he'll be 30 or 31. If they resign Bobby, Bobby's only going to be 28. PJ is going to be 38 and still might be able to defend people. Dante is going to be young. Bryn Forbes is going to be young. Like you could legitimately build out this team for two or three years and be guaranteed a really good core. Like, you know, I might be pinching myself and injuries could obviously ruin everything, but Milwaukee could be looking at a dynasty defining or a, at least a city defining team for decades to come. Like the Bucks could be relevant again. And that really could be a huge boon for Milwaukee. That's wonderful. Makes me the happiest guy on earth. I think that's the right place to close just on a high note for once on this podcast. Um, that'll do it for us here today. Sagar, I can't believe we've been friends for almost a decade And this is the first time we've ever, like, we've publicized our conversations before, but this is the first time we've ever just spoken on mics about basketball. I'm surprised it took eight years, and it's probably not going to take eight years for a second time. I am more surprised that we never got into my absurd Jeff T takes, and I'm thankful we never did. Listen, the guy made three threes in game six. He's absolved forever. As (laughs) I feel like this is, you know, Bill Simmons made the J.D. Drew game joke, but I feel like that's where we're at with Jeff T. He had one huge game that they needed to win, And that's that. Everything else is forgiven as long as he doesn't play in the finals. That'll do it for us here today, though. Colin and I will be back, I'm going to say Wednesday, later in the week at some point, probably after game one. And that'll do it for us here today. We'll be back later in the week.